Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one within reach. Definitely grab one and open to Matthew in the New Testament toward us the end of your Bible. Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Matthew 7, verse 24. Well, 2008 saw one of the more serious economic crises of our time. Many economists agree that it was due to the bursting of real estate bubbles, both nationally and internationally. But leading up to 2008, of course, the U.S. saw huge increases in housing prices and sales, and particularly in 2005, at the peak of the housing boom in the United States, sources say that more than 2 million, Wall Street Street Journal says that more than 2 million new homes were built in 2005, compared to about half a million, which began construction in 2009. But leading up to the crash, there, was a, there seemed to be this hunger for building and buying and selling. Home prices were rising quickly. Mortgage terms were loose. And there was a lot of wheeling and dealing going on. But reports say that one major consequence of the housing boom was poor housing construction. One writer says, quote, developers put pressure on contractors to build cheap and fast. One Seattle developer boasted of a 54-day construction schedule. Contractors pinched for experience. Subcontractors sometimes hired teams of unskilled laborers to handle critical tasks like pouring foundations, roofing, and the like. Furthermore, a shortage of quality building materials led to cheap and unstable substitutions. And if that wasn't enough, building inspectors were often crunched for time that they relied on spot checks that overlooked serious construction flaws. The Wall Street Journal reported as well that of those 2 million homes built in 2005, about 17% of them have at least two major construction defects. Two of five, whether a leaky roof, a leaky window, flooding basements because of poor grading and foundation, poor drainage materials, mold and cracking foundations. One example was the Blue Oak subdivision outside of Sacramento, California. From a distance, the place looks like a retirement dream. 250 freshly stuccoed ranch homes circling a private 18-hole golf course. But again, as the Wall Street Journal reported, over half of the homes literally began cracking into pieces. Started with the foundation, and the rest of the homes followed suit. The residents filed a a class action lawsuit claiming the builders neglected to properly test the soil upon which foundations were poured. It turns out that the heavy clay soil upon which they were built expands in the rainy winter and contracts in the scorching summer, which, of course, just wrenches the foundation back and forth, everything upon the foundation, and again, we'll do the same. Cracks and fissures spread through walls, tile floors. Residents reported a constant popping sound as they literally could hear the house crumbling while they slept. Shoddy construction, rushed, superficial building. Flippant standards. I'm not a contractor, but having worked in heavy construction myself, I can appreciate the pressures of, of deadlines and subs and things needing to get done. Nevertheless, the lesson stands, doesn't it? One thing I remember in my time is that shoddy construction risks unstable structures. And in tonight's text, we'll see the same thing happens all the more spiritually, inevitably. It's a timeless principle that when we really approach a a quick fix, a shoddy, superficial approach, a rushed approach to 
Christianity and easy believism Christianity, things can come crashing down. Oh sure, there'll be an appearance of something of substance, but nothing that'll last. Far worse consequences than cracking foundations and walls. Are you building a Christianity that will last, most importantly, that will stand in the judgment? Or are you building with a superficial approach to God? In our study this evening, Christ will lovingly teach us how to be sure we're building on the rock. So follow along as I read then Matthew chapter 7. I'll start in verse 21 and read through verse 29. The Lord Jesus said, Matthew 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone... Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house And it fell. And great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Well, the Sermon on the Mount which is what is contained in Matthew 5 through 7, one sermon. It took us 55 sermons, but we are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. A little Sermon on the Mount review as we finish this 18-month study. Recall big picture of what the Sermon on the Mount is, what sort of is happening here. Though humanity has no ability to get to heaven by our own doing, Through salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, we're consequently forgiven of our moral failure before God and empowered to live to his otherwise impossible ethical standard, that ethical standard which is characteristic in heaven, characteristic of God himself. A few, as we conclude, a few observations about the Sermon on the Mount, just to sort of remind us where we've been. I want to make ten quick observations what we've seen. First, we've seen that Christ is the authority, have we not? How many times is he saying, you've heard, but I say to you. He's the final authority on moral issues. Furthermore, he's the final judge, as we read in verse 21. On that day, I will say to them, his words are the authority, my words. Second, we've seen that Christ, furthermore, is not changing the Old Testament that the first century uh, Jewish audience is hearing, he's not changing, but he's clarifying it. It had been greatly distorted by man-made tradition, lowering God's moral bar to mere externals, a superficial spirituality. And he's refuting that. They were being led astray by a mythical moral relativism, and Christ says the opposite. Third, we've seen that God's people impact the world Not by similarities to the world, but similarities to God, personal holiness. Recall, he says, you are salt and light. But if salt isn't salty, it's ineffective. Let your light shine that they would see something different and glorify your Father in heaven. Fourth, we've seen God is concerned for every part of our life, especially motivations. The why that God alone sees, why we do. And this would surprise the first century Jewish audience because 
They're thinking, well, okay, it's a religious teacher. He's going to talk about what we do on um, the Sabbath and, and what we do at the temple, and that's about it. He says really nothing about those things. He says much, though, about their thought life, their intentions, and says you are condemned on that level. It's an amazing thing. Fifth, much about relationships with one another. So, I mean, a bu- a, the bulk of this teaching has much to do with our interactions with one another. Murder, anger, adultery, divorce, promises, retaliation, being true to our word, being more irritated by our own sin than that of others. There's not one fiber, one section of our life that is left off limits. Sixth, this Sermon on the Mount, and probably more than anything, shows us our great need for the death of Christ on the cross for our sins. And that's really the big point of the sermon. That it is a, it shows us an unachievable, perfect holiness apart from Christ. God is calling all humanity to a titanic personal holiness. Far beyond the spirituality of the Pharisees' day. Recall just a few, recall just a few things. I'm going to put a couple passages up here. Just the level of spirituality, of godliness he's calling us to. We saw Matthew 5.22, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, you're guilty. Guilty of what? You violated God's commands. Guilty enough for hell. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman or anyone with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Guilty. Matthew 5.37, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this, it's evil. Guilty. So, so far, we're murdering adulterous liars. Just at the level of our thoughts. Matthew 5.42, give to him who asks. Do not turn away. He wants to borrow. 5.44, love your enemies. Matthew 6.1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Guilty. No one can serve two masters. Don't be worried about your life. You may not worry. Guilty. Matthew 7.3, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? In other words, why are you more irritated by other sin than your own? Guilty. Matthew 7.12, and everything, everything, treat people the same way you want to be treated. You want them to treat you guilty. And of course, Matthew 5.48, in case you've been parading yourself for your moral righteousness, it's over on this level. You just need to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Like me, and like everyone on the planet, you have never lived up to these things a day in your life apart from Jesus Christ and before faith in Jesus Christ. We may not, we may not approach this sermon as nice moral lessons. It is a condemning, condemning sermon apart from Jesus Christ, and that's the point. That's the point. That you would see, I mean, there's no way. We're murdering, adulterous, lying, self-righteous, imperfect sinners. If we're going to get to heaven, it's not going to be by our works, is it? It's going to be by forgiveness for our unrighteous works. That's the point. However, when we do come and we mourn our sin, the seventh thing that we've seen about the sermon, this is, an, this is achievable. This is achievable holiness. This is an actual holiness that we can walk in. But not until you enter the narrow gate through faith in Christ and declare, I can never live by that. And I have never lived by that a day in my life, Lord. And once you're saved by faith in Christ, you begin to experience that transformation and by a miracle of God's grace. You walk in that. Apart from Christ, those standards are impossible. But once you are in Christ, they are inevitable. Every Christian will be characterized progressively by a measure of those things in the Sermon on the Mount. Eighth, furthermore, the highest ethic has the glory of God as its goal. The glory of God is the highest why behind I do anything. Why am I nice to people? The glory of God. 
Why don't I practice my righteousness before men to glory God? Ninth, there's an upside-downness to being a Christian, to being saved. An upside-downness to being a child of God. What do we mean by that? When Christ preaches a sermon, he's not directing it primarily to the outwardly immoral. He's directing it to Bible-knowing, God-confessing, God-believing people who look good on the outside. He's not addressing this to the flagrant pagans of society, but the flagrant, inwardly disobedient, though outwardly morally looking good people. And shows that he repudiates this idea of, sometimes you hear in testimonies, you know, I'm, gosh, I just never was that sinful and I'm thankful for that. What do you mean by that? You're as worse as anybody. Because God looks at the heart. There's an upside-downness. Furthermore, an upside-downness. When, when, when Christ starts the sermon, blessed are the poor, the bankrupt morally, the impoverished spiritually. That's the first line of the sermon. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. He's not saying, oh, you're so blessed if you've soared over the moral bar and God is applauding you into heaven. No, he's, you come downcast. You come broken over your sin or you do not come at all. You come as a moral beggar or you do not come at all. Those are the blessed ones. There's an upside downness to it. Blessed are the persecuted. There's an upside downness. Number nine and then tenth. We find in this sermon that there is an, we have an incredibly loving Father in heaven for all who will turn to Christ in faith. An incredibly loving Father. He's the Father who knows our needs as we worry. He's the Father who hears us as we cry out in prayer or as we struggle with anxiousness. He's the Heavenly Father who delights to hear our prayers and answer them. The Sermon on the Mount. So, Christ now concludes the greatest sermon ever preached and He doesn't conclude it on a happy note. Take note of this, by the way. As Christ is God and a great preacher, we might suppose we can learn something about great preaching. He concludes on a very somber warning. He's not fluffing our spiritual pillow. But his conclusion is like a fourfold, has like four parts to it. You know, the narrow road, the false prophets, the, the fake professors, fake the counterfeit believers from last week, and then here. We saw wide gates, false way to heaven. False teachers, those who influence false way to heaven, verse 15 to 20. And false devotion, verse 21 to 23. Now, a false doing, a hearing but not obeying, verse 24 to 27. Jesus warns of false Christians, those who would bank on an external spirituality. The final word picture contrasts a true child of God, devotion from the heart, with a false Christian, similar in appearance. And the end of the latter is clear enough, isn't it? Christ speaks out of love for humanity because there is no love if we do not speak truth. Zero. So then, Christ's final words in the Sermon on the Mount. Big picture is this. It's in your bulletin. The eternal well-being of all humanity, very simple here, hinges entirely upon how we approach the Word of God. Hinges entirely on how we approach these words. So from our text, I want to show you in our outline, we're going to see four eternally valuable facts about the Word of God. Four eternally valuable facts about God's Word. These will be helpful. These are eternally helpful. Number one is this. Similar to last week. God has lovingly given us His Word to guide and transform us. God has lovingly given us his word to guide and transform us. This is true in these verses as well as the whole Bible. This is what underlies Christ's conclusion in these firm words of warning. God has spoken finally, completely, and inerrantly. In 
these words, the 66 books of the Bible, God has spoken. And we have it here in these 66 books. He, in His providence, He has preserved His Word. Why? Because He cares for lost humanity. And there is no other way to savingly know God and to safely enter eternity apart from these words right here. Zero ability. Psalm 119.105 Your word is a lamp to my feet. In the middle there. A light to my path above that. Psalm 19. They, the, God's words are more desirable than gold. Why is that? Because you can't buy them. God gave them. They're infinitely valuable. Then much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and keeping them there is great reward. And then John 6. Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Everybody was abandoning Christ. Peter answers, Lord, I mean, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The words. The existence of the Bible, therefore, is an expression of God's Great love for humanity. Why does the Bible exist? Answer, because God loves lost humanity. Number two, a life, second fact, number two, a life built on enduring obedience to God's word is the only life which will stand the storms now and into eternity. A life built on enduring obedience to God's word is the only life, the only one which will stand the storms now and we might say especially into eternity. It all hinges upon our approach to God's word. Look at verse 24. Therefore, Therefore, the final therefore of the Sermon on the Mount, it all boils down to this. Every person is either building their life and preparing their eternity on the rock or sand, on enduring obedience and submission to the Word of God or something else. And everything else can be included in that something else. Everyone, verse 24, who hears these words of mine, you see his authority, and acts on them. Notice the comprehensiveness of the truth there. Everyone. If you can be included in that statement, everyone, then this is speaking to you. Who hears these words of mine. Christ's words, friends, are the dividing line. It's a claim to absolute exclusive authority. No other words are mentioned in this statement as being determinative or helpful for our eternity. And believe me, if there were other words, because Christ loves us, he would say so. If the Book of Mormon was helpful for our eternity, he would say, my words and the words of Joseph Smith. If the Quran or the words of Confucius or the Bhagavad Gita or whatever other words were helpful and determinative for our eternity, Christ would say so, but he does not. He says nothing about any other words, nothing about apocryphas or lost gospels, only my words. The 66 books of the Bible. Here's these words of mine, but there is far more than hearing God's words as it pertains to eternal life. Just like there is far more when you go to a restaurant than looking at a menu. Looking at the menu is important. Hearing his words are important, but he continues. Notice, here's these words in mind, verse 24, and, there's an and, what else, Jesus? Acts on them. Acts on them. The builder hears, but acts. The Greek word there translated acts simply means to do. Doing what he says. And the tense of the verb for acts there, it, it, it doesn't mean like, well, an intermittent act or a selective act, but a comprehensive, constant acting upon. 
The idea here is a pattern of responding in a way to Christ's words where I bend my life around Christ's words. I submit my life to Christ's words. And notice Christ doesn't say, he who hears my words and likes them. Uh, Nor does he say, uh, he who hears my words and feels emotional about them. Uh, He who hears my words and appreciates them. Or he who hears my words and, and knows they're right and gosh, that I should do them. But how many times perhaps have we said that or known someone who has? No, it's he who hears them and does them. Any other approach falls short. Is an, any other approach is an unsubmissive and a rebellious heart towards God, towards the King of Kings. So I believe it was Wayne Grudem that said, to obey the Word of God is to obey God. To obey God. So sincere obedience from the heart is the key. Why is this again? Because when you act on something, it demonstrates a true belief. Faith results in submission, a respect, a bending of the life. Christ said this again, we saw last week, I believe, Luke 6, I'll put it up where he said, why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? Flipping it around, meaning those who call me Lord will do what I say. In the news recently, there is an illustration that demonstrates this truth, namely acting on his words, a fishing boat was lost out at sea. They had to be rescued and the fishermen the fishermen, as so many of these incidents, these tragic incidents go, were sort of stranded in the tossing ocean and the rescuers sent a line down to them. And what was fascinating when they were rescued, they heard the words of the rescuer and when the line was dropped, they didn't say, oh yes, I see that that's a rescue line. Thank you. And they didn't say, oh yes, that's right, that that's a rescue line. I appreciate that rescue line. No, they heard rescue line and they grabbed onto it with dear life. They grabbed onto it with everything that they had. They acted. They heard and they did. Because they understood how much they needed that rescue. This, in part, is the idea that God is getting at here. Hearing and acting. Clinging to. Acting on them. Now, how does this all work? Because we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, we just said that we've never acted rightly upon God's words ever. Not once prior to knowing Christ. Unless you mean by acting disobeying. So how does this work? How do we act on his words? Because the foremost, please hear this, especially those of you who are outward religionists and depending on some background or depending on a relative for your salvation or depending on some feeling and you might not be saved. The foremost way we act on Christ's words is to declare to him that we have only disobeyed. The foremost way that we do the word of God is tell God that we've never done the word of God. That's where it all starts in salvation. Where do you get that from the Bible? First John 1, we'll put it up here, 1.9. If we confess, the word confess, it means to testify, to agree with, agree with God. If we confess our sins, confess, God, I have only fallen short of these words. He is faithful and righteous. He's just to forgive us because he supplied Christ for us. To forgive our sins and, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin... If you save it, if you come to God and say, well, I, I don't really have sin, you, you make him a liar. And the truth, his word is not in us. That is where acting upon the word of God in a saving way begins. Some of you need to do this even tonight. You've tried to act on God's words in other ways. And you've wondered, you've wondered, man, why, why do I keep, it's like this treadmill where I keep falling in the same thing and I keep falling in the same thing and I keep falling in the same thing. It might be because you're not saved. And, and God is so loving and he extends the Christ tonight to you as 
salvation and forgiveness, but you must come and confess your sins. That is the first way that we act on the word of God. And he is so faithful to forgive. Wouldn't you come tonight, friend, and act on the word of God by confessing you have only rebelled against the word of God. That frankly, from the heart and the deep of deeps of your mind and your motivations, yeah, you might have fooled some people, but not God. Confess to him. He is faithful. And, and Matthew 5, 3, as you do, as you mourn, as you confess your, that you are poor in spirit and you mourn your sin, you're blessed. You are blessed. Meaning you are in a state of blessedness before God. And the only people about whom that can be said are those who have confessed their sin to God, called on Him for salvation, acted in a way consistent with Romans 10, 13, that whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, as you confess, call on His name. He'll save you. That is the first way we must enter into the kingdom of heaven and enter in right standing before God and have assurance of eternal life and know that we are forgiven in a child of God by confessing and calling on the name of the Lord. Oh, friend, won't you come tonight and confess to a loving father, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Quit trying to, to, to climb some moral ladder up and up to heaven, you're only digging a deeper hole into hell as you do that. Confess to him and call out to him. He'll save you. Act on his words tonight. He's such a loving God. Full pardon he will give you. Well, now, once I do that, does this mean that what the fullness of what constitutes Acting and obeying Christ's words just mean just disobeying all the time and I can just confess, confess, confess and no real change? Absolutely not. How do we know that? Because there are many more verses in the Bible than 1 John 1, 9. But when we do fail as believers, how do we obey in our disobedience with a righteous heart? Matthew six twelve. He gave us provision for that. Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Do you see how loving He is? That He makes provision for us as we still sin, though we are children of God, to still act on the Word of God by, by saying, Father, in sincerity, forgive us. Forgive us. And then we embrace the Word of God. Obedience to the Word of God. And, and now Christ introduces a metaphor. End of verse 24. Those who act on the word of God may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. It is a simple illustration to describe the two ultimate ways of approaching life. And the rock is not Christ here. The rock is simply a sincere submission to the word of God that looks like obedience. Building a house upon rock symbolizes an outward appearance of commitment to God but accompanied with a sincere attitude from the heart of submission to the word of God. Building a house on the sand symbolizes an outward appearance of devotion to God, but with no foundation. And we'll discuss a little bit more what this is. Built his house on the rock. So what, what would Christ's first century hearers sort of picture when they hear Christ say, built his house on the rock? In a Mideast context rock and sand. This is not talking about just some few rocks thrown down around and under the foundation, but of course the Mideast being largely covered with sand, to build a house, you would have to dig down in the sand and dig down in the sand and dig down in the sand till you got to that hard bedrock, till your shovel went clang. You cannot build houses on sand. You must build on bedrock. Now, a few observations in a building a house on the rock, which is to instruct us on what it means to approach the Word of God, submission to the Word of God, and the Christian life. Number one, this takes work. This is hard work. Yes, salvation is by faith. 
But it is an enduring faith, and it takes work to dig down to the rock. It is hard work. We are not only to study the Word of God on Sundays as we gather, but daily in our private walk and dig in the Word of God. And it's hard work. I don't know what that means. I I better buy some sound commentaries and wrestle. It takes work. Number two, digging down to the rock takes time. Takes time. This is a, a, a book of 66 books. It's, it's, we're not going to get it instantly. We're not going to get to the bedrock overnight. You hear sometimes, you hear uh, testimonies of Jehovah Witnesses who are saved out of that uh, wretched false teaching. They say sometimes, yeah, I, man, I joined that cult and like after three weeks, they, I knew everything. They knew nothing. They, didn't, they knew nothing. They only knew They only knew what some of the manuals tell them, which are false doctrines. It's just terrible. True devotion takes work. Third, it's not always fun. Digging in the hot sand. And, I mean, this is first century. They didn't have backhoes and trackhoes. It's not always fun. It's hot. You're sweating. This is a battle to found my life on the rock, on Scripture. I, I still struggle with wanting the old ways of sin. I know, me too. Fourth, you have to dig deep. There's lots of sin in the Mideast. You're not always, you're not going to find that rock with, you know, one or two inches of digging. Sometimes you've got to go down and you've got to go down. And it's like, when am I going to hit this? Spiritually, in our walk with Christ, yes, we're saved in a moment by faith in Christ. But the kind of faith that will not depart from Christ is an enduring, a digging, digging down, and, and a, a continuing. John eight thirty one. Jesus said this. He was saying to those Jews who had believed, "If you continue in my word, this is a digging. Continue in my word. You're truly disciples." And it's interesting. Because it says they believed. Do you see that there in verse 31? They believed, but you must continue. The Greek word there translated continue has the idea of remaining, dwelling, enduring, not departing from something. If you continue, there is a, there, there is a, let's put the verse back up there. There is a condition upon being his disciple truly. If you continue. Do we not have that there? John 14. Let's look at John 14. Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who, the Father's who sent me. The word keep, again, has the idea of attending carefully to something. Anyone who keeps my word, furthermore, will never see death. Digging down deep fifth, building on the rock. Much of the work is unseen. Much of the work is unseen. There is much going on behind the scenes. There's not always the instant gratification. I need to dig. Beloved, this, if nothing else, I mean, this means we are wrestling with the Word of God behind the scenes, doesn't it? Sixth. The strength of the work will largely depend upon what you cannot see. The strength of the work will largely depend upon what you cannot see. You're digging a hole and you're digging a hole. The integrity of the work is not seen. Bedrock doctrines, big God doctrines, doctrines of sovereign grace upon which we found our lives. We dig down. Much of it is unseen. It's hard. You feel like you're in a big hole sometimes, but by God's grace and submission to His Word, be encouraged. A strong foundation is being built. And just because we've been saved maybe, maybe for years or decades doesn't mean we might not have to do more digging sometimes and uh, more foundation repairs for the sandy areas of our foundation. I've had to do that. Whether bad teaching, bad shepherding, whatever, it's necessary. 
But notice the reward, verse 25. And the rain fell. The rain fell. The floods came. And in, in, in the Mideast, much of, much of these streams or these wadis are dry. Let's, it doesn't look like this stream could do anything to me. There's not water in it. However, they get these short, heavy storms. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house. The Greek writes the idea of beat on the house. And yet it didn't fall. It didn't fall. Oh, there was a beating, but it didn't fall. Reason being, it was founded on the rock. Is your life founded on the rock, friend? Notice, slammed. It doesn't say, well, the rain pitter-pattered a bit, you know, on the roof and the deck, and good thing for Thompson's water seal and all that. We're good to go. Surface kind of coating. No. Slammed. And only because we were on the rock. John Calvin writes, True piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit till it comes to the trial. For temptations by which we are tried are like billows and storms which easily overwhelm unsteady minds whose lightness is not perceived during the season of prosperity. Well, they're doing well in prosperity. Of course they are. Of course. There's no storm. And may God help us. So the great question here is, what are the slamming storms? I believe... By application, we can talk about the trials of life. By application. But I think what he is referring to here specifically is Judgment Day. The final day, which he talked about in verse 22 of Matthew 7, where he says, on that day. On that day. How do we know that? Again, context. Number one. Number two, we know that because often in the Old Testament, very frequently storms are a metaphor for the judgment of Humanity. His audience is mostly composed of Old Testament hearing Hebrews. Third, how do we know that? Because not everyone in life experiences great storms. Often those who do not dig down to the rock, don't, their life is easy. Why? Psalm 73, Lord, why? How come flagrant pagans, those who disobey your word, their life is so easy? That's a very, that's a very real thing. And until, of course... We have to stand before Jesus Christ in the judgment. Now, isn't it true that if we act on Christ's words, submit to them, well, our life will be found on the rock? Absolutely. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Paul gives us, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, notice there's not just receiving Him. We need to walk in Him, being firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you are instructed and in overflowing with gratitude. Love that verse there. However, number three, the building of one's life, number three, is often not immediately obvious. It's often not immediately obvious. Are they on sand or or are they on rock? Are they on sand or rock? Hard to tell sometimes, isn't it? True and false Christians can sometimes have outward similarities. Notice a couple similarities between the two builders. Number one similarity, both hear the word of God. They both hear. Verse 24, everyone who hears. Verse 26, everyone who hears. They both hear the word of God. They've both done some listening. They've sat in churches. They've studied the Bible. They might have even gone to seminary. They might be Bible teachers. Second, therefore, they both had a knowledge of God's word. They could tell you verses. They could describe the Bible. Similarities. Number three, both built houses. Do you see that in the text? They both built houses. The houses appear the same externally. Houses are constructed. Very similar situations outwardly. Both appear to have a similar life going on as far as commitment to God. They've heard God's word and they've done something. But what they have done is very different, especially underneath. But they both appear to have this. Oh, they sit in churches. They are nice to people. They help people. They're charitable. 
forth, but both experience both experience the same external circumstances. Rain, floods, slamming. But of course, there will be a far different outcome for each. In nice weather, both houses look the same. But in judgment, they will be totally different. Storms show the quality of the building, don't they? Fourth, a life therefore built upon something other than enduring obedience. Enduring obedience to God's word will result in eternal devastation. If you are not building your life on enduring obedience, it will result in eternal devastation. If anything is clear in the text, that is. Look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Verse 27, rain fell, floods came, winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell. And notice Jesus says, not only was it a fall, look at the text. Great was its fall. Notice the foolish man who still built a house. Again, if you were to look at his property, you would say, oh, um, uh, gosh, there's an appearance of hard work here. After all, there's a house. There is some framing. There's a door. There is a roof. There is some fresh paint. Uh, There's an appearance of energy, of devotion, of doing, doing right. The undiscerning would say, oh, uh, how wonderful. He still has a house. All looks good. A wise man must live there. It's possible, beloved, to spend a long time on a false Christianity and not realize it until it's too late. Hence these words of our loving Lord. A few observations then of building a house on the sand. Number one, it's easy. It's pretty easy. You don't have to dig down very much. You just, boom, plop your house right there. It's, It's fun to play in the sand. Easy believism. Number two, takes a little time. Building your house on the sand takes a little time. The man who did not dig was more interested in getting a house up that he and perhaps others could look at and so that he and his superficial fans could think, wow, you got a house up. Hey, you, you look how fast that happened. You must be doing something, right? And look at that poor guy over there. He's digging and sweating. All I see is some sand flying up. What's his deal? That poor guy. Those who build on sand prefer a quick result. And this can be very dangerous in things like evaluating if someone is saved and really loves Christ because Christ's approach is, eh, we'll see if you're saved. Be sure and go bear fruit. The parable of the sowers in Luke 8. We'll wait and see, like George Whitfield used to say when he would preach in colonial America. They'd ask him, Whitfield, how many people were saved as you preached tonight? I don't know. We'll see in six months. Oh, many professions would be made. Tears cried, hands raised. We'll see in six months. In the kingdom of God, we're not looking for instant gratification. We're looking for genuine salvation. But that's too hard for contemporary sandcastle Christianity, isn't it? It's much more fashionable at your annual members meeting and on your Twitter account to say we had hundreds of people that signed a card and that, and that walked an aisle. That's much, that's much more fashionable than having to wait, disciple people, disciple people, disciple people, let the crop grow and bear fruit. Hey, people signed a card. They wrote their name down to receive Christ. Well, they must be going to heaven because there's many verses about that, isn't there? There are none. Sand Christians suppose that man's expediency is a suitable substitute for God's theological profundity. But it is not. They suppose that results are suitable substitutes for faithfulness. Sand spirituality can happen with little effort. It's more about fun, fast feeling of my feelings. 
rather than patient hard work of digging down to the rock and fighting, fighting the good fight. Oh, there's lots of verses about that. Beware, friends. Beware. Especially in our prosperous culture of the supposed next great Christian thing, next great Christian preacher, next great idea, next great movement, which seems to pop up, but only for a decade, maybe two. And of course, the faster it arises, the easier it was to build, wasn't it? It was founded on sand. May God help us. It's a sand movement. In certain matters of our job and life, faster can be good, but not in godliness. This is why, for example, we encourage you to study the Reformers, Puritans, faithful men from half, half a millennium ago, 500 years. Why do you think that material is still relevant today? It towers, it towers spiritually over so much of the junk that fills Christian bookstores and fills your iPod. Why is that? Because it was founded on the rock. Third, digging sand is fun. Digging sand is fun. Playing in the sand, we can play volleyball while we dig with a few shovels. Something quick, it scratches the itch. There's a visual prettiness. Sure, there's work that goes into making it visually pretty on the outside. Lots of paint, cool siding, some neat fixtures. Pastors that prepare sermonettes for Christianettes. But there's nothing that happens underneath. Oh, but uh, the crowds, they wanting fun and something easy. It's sort of a fireworks Christianity. Quick, get something going. I think people are starting to get bored. Okay, quick, light it, launch it, boom. That was so neat. They're getting bored again. Quick, launch something else. Do something, light something, something. Because heaven forbid that they would get bored and have to dig down to the rock. Something must be happening. This guy can gather a crowd. He's an influencer. Fireworks. He does fireworks. He's a false teacher. He and his followers will hear, I never knew you. It'll come crashing down. And the only thing louder than the superficial applause of his unregenerate crowds will be the crashing down of the sand house and the judgment. You don't have to dig very deep. Number four. Just push some sand around. A little depth is necessary. No, no wrestling with the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the depravity of man. Just give me just sand doctrines. Give me a sand theology. That's what I, that's what I want. They don't want a depth of soul searching. They don't want a depth of seeing their own sin. They don't want a depth of personal change and repentance. They don't want a depth of cultivating, growing their soul, and loving Christ. As Spurgeon said, want of depth and want of sincerity, want of zeal. This is the want of our times, spoken in the mid-1800s. Don't give me a Christianity which forces me to examine my motives. Just tell me I'm awesome. Much of the work is seen, number five, number six. There's not much strength to the work. How many times has this happened over the years? A a movement, a form of Christianity rises up and boom, it's dead in a decade or two. Paul, but when it was rising up, it was the greatest thing. You You could smell the fresh paint on it. Everybody's head turned. So what happens to sand Christianity? Are you a sand Christian, by the way? Are you a sand Christian? Is yours a sand spirituality? Oh, dig into the Word of God, beloved. Verse 27. It fell and great was its fall. It all looks the same, the two houses, until they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be a great, great fall. It will be amazing. It will be an amazing thing. As all of these beautiful, painted, stucco, spiritual sand houses just crash one 
after the other, after the other, after the other. Lord, Lord, we thought we were building something. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Lord, Lord, we did. We had crowds. We had miracles. Lord, Lord, it'll all come crashing down and it'll be a great fall. It will be a tremendous fall. Mega, the Greek word is. Mega fall. Crashing. I, I plead with you, friends, to take inventory of your soul. Please. A life built upon something other than enduring obedience to God's Word will result in eternal devastation. He is talking about hell. You can have an appearance of Christianity, but be going to hell. Is this you? Is there no digging in your life? Is it just a sort of showing up in a hearing? By this verse, you cannot have assurance, friend, that you know God savingly, that you will stand welcome into eternity. It is not here. Christ loves us too much to scratch the itch and fire fireworks. Is yours a digless Christianity, a sand spirituality? You will go to hell. You will die. You will stand before Jesus and be amazed as he condemns you justly for, to hell for all eternity. Oh, some of you, are, you, you yawn at this truth. Oh, God, have mercy on you. I plead with you today. I plead with you to come to Christ. Confess to him. Be a doer of the word of God. It will come crashing down, friend. It is going to come crashing down. Please turn to Christ. Believe on Him. The fall will be great. Verse 28, and so our Lord ends there. <laughs> That's where He ends. I'll be saved. Some of you are sand Christians. I can barely stand it that, that unregenerate people come and keep coming. We love it that unregenerate people come, but that they stay unregenerate. It is torment. Please, 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 please dig. Dig, friend. Believe on Christ. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Yes, they were. Yes. By the way, amazed doesn't mean they were saved. They were amazed. Why? Look at the text. Because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Authority. Not just he speaks loud, but he's God. He's going to stand there in the judgment and condemn us for being sand Christians but He'll save us and forgive us if we turn to Him. Their scribes, they just quoted other scribes and other Pharisees. Jesus quotes Himself because He's God. Come to Him, believer. All you believers, come to Him for forgiveness. Those of you who don't know Christ, come to Him for forgiveness. We're going to take communion now. We're going to take communion now. That's a a time to recall and embrace a few things as believers that we always have forgiveness. We always have forgiveness as believers. The joy of standing in grace. There is no such thing as a day as a believer where I do not stand in grace and have forgiveness. The bread and the cup... The bread symbolizes the body of Christ, which was given. The blood is symbolized by the cup. There is no, there's no forgiveness that happens by drinking the cup and by ingesting the bread. Nevertheless, they are highly significant because by taking them, we are in effect saying to God that we believe, as Christ set out to demonstrate to us in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are very, very, very unqualified to get to heaven by our own doing. But however, 
by the death of Christ in our place, when we put simple faith in Him, God counts all our sin to have been punished in the body, evidenced by the spilling of the blood, the death of Christ. It's a great gift of our loving Lord. We can go free, forgiven. I pray if you don't know Christ, if you're a sand, a sand Christian, that you would please put faith in Him. If you're not willing to bow the knee in faith to Jesus, please do not come and partake. That's, that's a blaspheming the name of Christ. It's a very serious thing to take the bread and the cup. If you're unwilling to receive God's free gift of forgiveness, please just watch, just observe what's going on. The sobriety combined with the joy of it. But please, stand Christian, unbeliever, whatever it might be, you can just re- receive Christ's forgiveness and be saved by asking Him. And then you can come and partake genuinely, authentically, for the very first time. Those of us who are believers, recall Jesus said, we still need a, a washing of the hands and the feet as Jesus said in the upper room discourse, to symbolize we still need that forgiveness, but it's not judicial forgiveness. It's, it's just relational forgiveness as we confess our sins of the week or whatever and we come and partake. But again, if you're a believer and you're unwilling to confess and repent of any sin in your life, please do not partake unworthily. But again, it doesn't have to be that way. You can just ask God's forgiveness. I'll give us all some time. Thank God for the cross. Thank God that though all of us fall short of the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps all of us have some sand Christian in us. There is forgiveness through the death of Christ. And when you're ready, grab the cup and the bread and we will all partake of it together.